Welcome to Work and Play, the podcast of Constanti Brooks Smith & Profit. Here we discuss employment news and provide practical tips that you can use at your company or in your practice. I'm your host, Susan Basford-Wilson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner, Sherry Silverman. Welcome, Sherry. Thanks, Susan. I hope you had a wonderful Mother's Day. Except for the one kid who threw up, it was lovely. I hope that you had a wonderful Mother's Day as well, and I hope that our Mother's Day public service announcement helped some of our other listeners too. Yeah, I think if we you know, gave the heads up to just one person, I feel like we did our job. Okay, so what's in store for today? You know the old HR truism about how you spend 90% of your time on 10% of your employees? Yes. Well, I would like to dedicate this episode to our good friends in human resources who are on the front lines of handling that 10%. Yeah, we feel for you folks. We do. The 10% are often people who have unusual issues or who tend to inspire a, let's say, strong reaction in those supervising them. And occasionally their supervisors lose sight of the advice that we have given them and put some truly awful and hilarious things into writing. I will give you some examples. He sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. (laughs) This employee is depriving a village somewhere of an idiot. A gross ignoramus, 144 times worse than an ordinary ignoramus. Yeah, yeah, people are just, (laughs) I know, you can't make this stuff up. All right, I have some to share as well. Um, When his IQ reaches 50, he should sell. Or... A photographic memory, but with the lens cover glued on. Or, my personal favorite, some drink from the fountain of knowledge. He only gargled. (laughs) Now, to be clear, we do not recommend that a manager write down this type of comments. While they might be cathartic and they're very fun to read, they're not actually productive. And if those comments are blown up into 80-point font and put in front of a jury, the jury may or may not be amused by them. I agree, you know, and probably may not. But I would venture to say some of these would probably make excellent memes. So we need to think about that. (laughs) Uh, Maybe that's just me, but um, employment lawyers, I think, and HR folks as well can get a bit of a warped sense of humor over the years. I would love to deny it, but it's true. I I think it's a self-defense mechanism. You end up thinking to yourself stuff like, eh, sadly, that's that's not actually the worst naked coworker picture I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to be honest, I've reviewed quite a lot of text and social media exchanges in the course of investigating the plaintiffs and the cases that we handle. And I've had to Google some of the stuff I read because I've never heard of them before. And I swear it sets off alarms in our IT department and they're wondering, what the heck is she doing? (laughs) Right? Where you want to send a prophylactic email to someone somewhere saying, no, no, guys, this is case related. I I swear. (laughs) Yep. Mm -hmm. That. Anyway, if you have ever felt the desire to make one of these colorful and cathartic comments, then this podcast is for you. (laughs) Great. 
Uh, and it's time like these when I think it's a good thing that our podcasts are audio only. <laughs> all right. With all of that said, let's jump into our agenda. First up, let's talk about the Mouthy blogger. All right, you're not talking about the Mouthy podcaster, are you? You're not trying to tell me something here. Present company completely excluded. You are fabulous. And also, we like our coworkers. So the stereotype I was about to describe is someone who spends a lot of time online. So much so that one wonders when they get the time to work, eat, sleep. They criticize their employer, their supervisor, their coworkers, their in-laws, Karen, yeah. you know. Yeah. You know, yeah, got it. This person could potentially present First Amendment concerns depending on whether you are a public or private employer. But more commonly, this person could create situations with National Labor Relations Act implications by engaging in protected concerted activity. Or this person might end up being a whistleblower. You know, I really enjoyed our hypotheticals and the hypothetical state of disbelief last time. So <laughs> why don't we pack our virtual suitcases and go there again? We can't go anywhere else. <laughs> right. So if the Maldi blogger lives in the state of disbelief where only federal law applies, can you fire him for, say, you know, bad mouthing his supervisor online? Surprising. No one anywhere. It depends. Of course, it does. All right, elaborate. You have to take a deep breath and look at the statement or statements closely and objectively. What is the employee talking about? Is he complaining about his wages? Is he talking about getting paid overtime? That is, supervisors telling him to work off the clock. Did any of his coworkers chime in? That is the type of comment that triggers the NLRA's protections on protected concerted activity. And while the National Labor Relations Board under the current administration has taken a slightly less severe approach about comments made around the so-called online water cooler, I'd advise employers to talk to counsel before taking disciplinary steps on the basis of, of those type of online comments. Yep. Good advice. But can you share an example of when an employee can badmouth their employer or supervisor and actually be disciplined for it? You know, I remember an example from an NLRB memorandum several years ago now where there was someone who did not like the fact that boxes of paper, boxes of stuff were placed on her desk. So she took to Facebook to complain about this horrendous situation. And even the NLRB agreed that this was a personal gripe rather than protected concerted activity. Good. Good result. Um, you know, sometimes I think, or oftentimes, these comments really fall into the gray area. So it's good to have some sort of idea of, you know, what you can discipline and, and what is really off limits. But employers don't have to put up with everything that is said about them online. All right. So let's talk about the employee who complains all the time about everything from lighting in her office to coworkers who are just so rude to the people who are serving food in the company's cafeteria, you know, that person. Good one. Let's call her sensitive Sally. Sally makes mountains out of molehills. She reacts to everything, real or imagined. She is in your office or in her boss's office every week. 
And if we're going to be blunt, she can be kind of exhausting. And, you know, if we're talking like we're talking to our kids, is this someone who's crying wolf all the time? Right. And she is exhausting. But if you ignore her, then you run the risk of ignoring a legitimate complaint. Even a stopped clock is right twice a day, as the saying goes. Yep. And by complaining, Sensitive Sally might actually be requesting a reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Exactly. The easily changed lighting in her office could absolutely be something that triggers her migraines, or her coworkers could be harassing her. I often tell clients in this situation to think about the complaint as though it were the first one Sally's ever made. If she's telling you about something that might be sexual harassment, you need to investigate it. If she's telling you she needs something, you know, whether it's different lighting, you know, determine whether she's requesting an accommodation and start that interactive conversation that we mentioned time and time again. Absolutely. Be patient and be consistent with Sally. Also, keep an eye out for retaliation. It could be that Sally's boss is irritated by Sally's constant complaints, complaints that frequently involve the supervisor. And you would not want to create a situation where the not very important complaint triggers a very important retaliation claim. Yep. Truth. All right. This is fun. So what else should we discuss? What about the guy who made a complaint or who filed a charge of discrimination? which he believes has made him immune from any and all other workplace policies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to call this guy Mr. Untouchable. Mm-hmm. And we see this one quite a bit. I love it. In my experience, Mr. Untouchable often has legitimate performance and attendance issues and a fairly hefty sense of entitlement. Yep. Of course, the biggest, most obvious risk here is retaliation. From his perspective, he's saying, look, I made a complaint, and now all of a sudden the company is issuing a warning. Of course, the fact that he got a warning because he hasn't shown up to work on time in a week is, of course, totally unrelated. Always unrelated. And adding to retaliation, you can also have some poor morale from all the other employees who are actually trying to do their jobs, as well as logistical issues stemming from his poor performance. You hired him because you do really and truly need someone to do his job. Okay, can I hop up on my handy-dandy soapbox about having solid, legal, and well-publicized policies in place before the problem arises? Oh, be my guest. All right. It's much easier to require certain behavior from an employee, you know, like showing up on time, turning in their paperwork, meeting guidelines. If you have that policy in writing and you can show that the employee received the policy, of course, preferably before he or she makes a complaint, that eliminates the argument that he or she didn't know what was expected of them and also creates consistency among employees. That's an excellent soapbox. You can stay on it as long as you like. Well, thank you. I I need the height anyway, so I'll stay up here. (laughs) (laughs) To go with your solid, well-distributed policies, let's talk about the value of documentation. 
If you have someone in your workplace who has already made a complaint, then you do need to think twice before you take any disciplinary action against him. You, of course, want to make sure that it's a valid complaint and that there's not any retaliation occurring. But if and when you do need to take some action, you need to document it thoroughly. And you need to be patient and work through whatever progressive discipline plan that you normally follow. Don't get irritated with Mr. Untouchable and fire him without giving him a real chance to change his behavior. Yeah, great advice. I mean, I always say this doesn't mean that this employee is protected forever and ever. You can move forward with your ordinary disciplinary process, but you've got to be extra cautious. So this might be a situation where you need to get your lawyer involved. Please call your lawyer. Please don't fire him and then tell your lawyer afterward, while you have a pending charge of discrimination from this gentleman, that you fired him. Exactly. All right. So let's back up a second to something that you mentioned earlier. You said you need to document it. I did. And I have a feeling by document it, you probably didn't mean just to scribble an illegible line on a sticky note somewhere. You are correct. By good documentation, I mean documents that are legible, preferably typed. And I'm setting a, a high standard here. I know that. But I would like them also to be dated. Oh, and, and I can add, you know, to that, the year 2020, you know, you may want to actually write it the whole year instead of just the 20. <laughs> I agree. And it contains the full names of all people mentioned, including the author. You writing it right now know who Fred is, but if I read it three years from now, I won't know who Fred is. I also want you to list the necessary information and background, and I'd, I'd love it if you reference the relevant policies within this disciplinary form. I would like it to be fact-driven and accurate. If it's, you know, if there was profanity used, I, I'd like you to specifically quote it. Specificity is important. Yeah, I agree. It's, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to say these words or write them down, but you, you've got to include those facts. And I would really like it if the disciplinary form stated the consequences of failing to improve, for example, suspension or even termination. And I really do enjoy signed documents. All excellent advice which I think could be a podcast in and of itself. And of course, store the documentation carefully somewhere that you'll actually be able to find it again in the future. Yes, please. If you get sued, I would really like us to be able to use that carefully prepared documentation to help defend the case. Even if the case comes up five years down the line, I currently have a case that began in 2005-ish. Sometimes lawsuits cover a whole lot of time. Yeah, definitely. All right. How about one last scenario? One last scenario? I have many. All right. Well, maybe we should do another episode of dealing with difficult employees in a few months from now. I like that idea. And if our listeners have any ideas or hypotheticals that they'd like us to uh, discuss or share, they could email those to us at work and play, spell out the word and at constangi.com. Love it. Listeners, consider yourselves invited. Okay, so what should our last scenario for the day be? What about B.O. Bobby? 
Sure, why not? Let me guess. Bobby has terrible body odor. He does. As far as you know, it is not related to a medical condition. You just think that he doesn't bathe or do laundry regularly. What pitfalls do you immediately see here, Sherry? Well, of course, there's um, ADA exposure here. Because as far as you know, his odor isn't related to a medical condition, but you probably don't actually know that for sure. You could run into a Title VII religious discrimination situation, you know, if he's not wearing deodorant because of a sincerely held religious belief. That's a possibility. And as a practical matter, you might have some complaints from not only employees, but customers too, if he's customer facing. Nailed it. Now, to solve this tricky situation, to begin with, it would be great if you had hygiene in your dress code policy. And if this information comes to you from a coworker, make sure it's valid, not someone with an axe to grind who's, who's looking to embarrass Bobby. And I think most importantly, when you talk to Bobby, I recommend that you meet with him privately and broach this issue tactfully and with dignity. If there are no medical or religious grounds here, you might suggest to him that you wanted to let him know his deodorant isn't working and he might want to try another brand. He's going to get the point, but you haven't humiliated him. Yeah. And as much as you might want to leave an anonymous gift basket of deodorant and personal care items in his chair, hoping that he just gets the point, I think your suggested approach is better. Thank you. Um, This year, pre-quarantine, I moderated a panel of plaintiff-side employment lawyers for the SHRM chapter here in St. Louis that we called What Not to Do, Lessons from the Plaintiff's Bar. And I got to ask them lots of interesting questions about things like what they look for in a new case and what kinds of cases they're seeing trending right now. And I particularly enjoyed hearing their perspective on why people walk into their office in the first place why people take the step to file a charge or to sue. Very interesting. Do tell. It was great. And some of the things that got mentioned as reasons why people decide to file a lawsuit were, unsurprisingly, a toxic work environment, the failure to meet the employee's expectations, and this is a big one, not treating people with respect and with dignity. You know, I think that's a really important overarching point. Everyone has feelings of pride and even difficult employees deserve to be handled with courtesy and respect, especially because I think, I do think this is the reason sometimes employees sue. They just, they have their feelings hurt and they just feel that things were handled unfairly. I agree. Did our discussion of difficult employees today remind you of any uh, stories that you'd like to share? Of course. Um, Hard to limit it to just one, but I'm going to be stingy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So if I had to pick, I think it's only fair that we pick on employees in our own field. I mean, why the heck not, right? (laughs) Not, Not all attorneys have the greatest reputation. And there are plenty of stories that I've seen since everyone started working from home. So we'll go with this one. As you know, um, a lot of courthouses across the country have been closed due to the coronavirus. And so a lot of hearings have been done via video teleconference. Let's just say that some attorneys have been a 
too casual about it. And one particular judge noticed a trend of attorneys showing up for hearings without shirts on. I did see that story and I I have questions. (laughs) I have many questions because that would not fly anywhere that I practice. You know, I think most people have been pretty understanding in these crazy, unprecedented times, but there was a judge in South Florida who just had enough and felt compelled to send a letter to the Bar Association urging lawyers to dress appropriately. You know, he specifically said, you know, putting on a beach cover up won't cover up the fact that you're by the pool. And also, it's not okay to show up for a hearing while still in bed under the covers. <laughs> Hashtag Florida man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Love it. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. On that note, thank you as always for joining me, Sherry. You're welcome. Before we sign off, I want to make my typical request of our listeners. As I've said before, we are a new podcast, and it would be great if those of you listening would follow us, rate us, and especially leave us written reviews on iTunes, Blueberries, wherever else you get your podcasts so that other people who are interested in employment law can find us. Thank you, and we hope you tune in for the next episode in a couple of weeks.